Well, we are in the very end of John chapter 18, and last week we looked at Pilate's interrogation of Jesus, and we stopped right as Pilate, uh, having been offered life with Jesus by Jesus himself, dismisses Jesus with the words, what is truth? Well, this week we're going to pick up right where we left off with Pilate, but before we do that, we're going to jump all the way back to John chapter 12, verse 9, and read about the triumphal entry, since that's what we celebrate today, and the events surrounding the triumphal entry, then pick it back up where we left off in John 18 last week, because I think all these events give context to what we see happening in our passage today. So again, I'm starting in John chapter 12, uh, and I'm going to start at verse 9. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you were gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, I'm going to jump ahead to John 18, and I'm going to pick it up with verse 33, the very passage we started looking at last week. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your son who entered David's royal city, true king and heir of David, the one who would sit on the throne forever. 
We thank you for his ministry and his life, for his death and his resurrection. And now we pray that his spirit would be amongst us, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with John 12, if you start at the very beginning of that chapter, we read that Jesus was in Bethany uh, six days before Passover, so roughly five days before his interrogation with Pilate at the end of John 18. And just for context, Bethany was a little under two miles uh, to the east of Jerusalem. So he's there visiting with Lazarus, his friend, whom he had raised from the dead. And a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there and they they wanted to see him, but they also wanted to see Lazarus too. And you can understand why. There were eyewitnesses who had seen Lazarus dead and buried. And four days later, they witnessed Jesus raise him from the dead. And so, as you can imagine, the word about Jesus and Lazarus spread quickly. In verse 10, it says that the chief priests, who had already decided in John 11 that it would be better if Jesus were dead, and we've we've covered that a lot over the last month or so, well, they decided that, that Lazarus needed to die too. And the reason was because people were taking Lazarus's testimony about Jesus seriously and were in turn believing in Jesus. So it's telling, right, that the crowds would take a resurrected man's word seriously about Jesus who resurrected him. But the high priests, you know, the ones who were over Israel's worship and technically were Israel's pastors. No, they, they not only did they not deny that, that Jesus had raised Lazarus, they never said, called that into question. But still, they thought it better for both men to die. So the next day, those same crowds heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they lined the road. And remember, this is just two miles away. They lined the road and took up palm branches and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So Jesus was riding on a a young donkey. And John tells us that it was in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which was our, our call to worship today, where it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Here again, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Even so, those details have cultural and symbolic meaning. They're not random. It's not just like, well, hey, there's a donkey. Let's do. No, this actually has real meaning. So put it like this We've all witnessed when presidents or celebrities show up with an entourage, you know, or bodyguards, or expensive. Vehicles, or in the case of, say, a president or a military leader, they have military escorts. And they do that not only for their protection, but as a sign of their strength or their power or their influence. But in the ancient world, sometimes kings, they would absolutely do that if they were conquering a city. But sometimes kings, like, say, a Roman Caesar, would enter his own city on a donkey. And he would do that as a symbol of peace. It was a sign that they were not a threat to their own people. They were not showing up to conquer their own hometown and be a tyrant. Now, that's that's obviously true of Jesus, too. But more so, it's a sign and a picture of his humility. The king of kings and lord of lords, the one who commands legions of angels, shows up as a servant. 
He shows up not to be served, but to serve. So the scene, as we see it, is actually very regal. The people of God called Jesus the heir of David, and Jesus, in turn, accepted their praise. So Luke tells us in his account that the triumphal entry began at the, at the Mount of Olives. And this is the same spot where Jesus often went for prayer and the very place where he ascended into heaven. And I'm not going to uh, belabor all the ways this works in the Old Testament, though it's fascinating. But in short, the olive, the olive oil, and olive trees are all associated with the Holy Spirit and are bound up with the temple, in particular, the Holy of Holies. It's why when Noah received an olive branch from a dove on the ark, it was symbolic of the Spirit descending upon Noah as a new Adam and a new creation. It's why when someone was anointed with oil, in particular kings in the Old Testament, it was a symbol of being anointed with the Spirit. You all know the phrase, right? He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. That means my God has filled me with his spirit and provided all things for me. That's King David saying that. And as an aside, what was unique to, a, to certain individuals in the Old Testament, like David, has now become the standard for all of, of uh, God's people through Pentecost and the pouring out of the spirit. So you too, like David, have been anointed with the Spirit. So what we are meant to see with the triumphal entry is the promised heir of David, you know, the one of 2 Samuel 7 or Psalm 2 or Psalm 110, who would sit on David's throne forever, coming out of a symbolic throne room of God. That's what the Holy of Holies represented. That's why the Ark of the Covenant was there. Right? The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God. His feet rested in that place. And so you're supposed to see uh, Jesus coming out of heaven from the throne room of God, entering David's royal city, Jerusalem, which is basically the place of Yahweh's peace. That's what Jerusalem means, Yahweh's peace. And as Luke writes in 1918, those who had believed because of Lazarus were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Blessed, or excuse me, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So, Jesus, the Son of God, the heir of David, has brought heaven to earth. That's what's on view. He has brought heaven to earth. That's always, by the way, the movement of salvation. God comes to us, heaven comes near. So, with Jesus, the new creation. You know, far better than what was on offer with Noah, which Noah's was enjoying a kind of new creation. The new creation with Christ was breaking into the world. That's what's on view. And the Pharisees were having none of it. They said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So as the crowds were rightly praising Jesus as Lord and King, the Pharisees called him, teacher. They refused to bow the knee or more so bend their will to his. Instead, they insisted Jesus repudiate what the crowds were saying about him. And Jesus in turn said, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out, which is a statement 
about his role as the creator God. So as crowds continued to bear witness about Jesus because of Lazarus, the Pharisees griped about it. They really groused about it. They said, you see, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after that guy. And if that sounds like jealousy, it's because it is. The Pharisees alongside the Sanhedrin and the scribes were losing their influence. They were losing their status and they hated it. They should have responded like John the Baptist, a man who also had influence and a following who preached about the coming of the Christ. And when John started losing followers to Jesus and his disciples seemed concerned about it, no, 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 he rightly embraced it. Here's what he says in John 3. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's a summary of discipleship. He must increase, but I must decrease. And it's exactly the opposite of how the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and so forth approached it. John knows he's not the Christ. And because of that, to lose his followers to Jesus, it's not a loss. It's exactly what he wants. That's not how the Pharisees saw it at all. They enjoyed their position and influence. And despite everything that pointed to Jesus as the Christ, they hated him. Now, in Luke's account, we learn that as he was nearing Jerusalem after the triumphal entry, Jesus wept over it because he knew, he knew that David's city would reject David's heir. And it was tragic. It was heartbreaking to him that they would choose death over life. And we're going to see that in just a few moments. Now, once in Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple and he cleansed it. Like many of of the Old Testament prophets, it was what, what scholars call an enacted prophecy. That is, he was acting out symbolically the shape of the future coming judgment. But it's more than just prophecy. It's actually a kingly act. See, the people of God, led by the high priests and the Sanhedrin and the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew how to do orthodox worship. They knew how to do it. But they rejected God even as they did it. And this is the very definition of what a hypocrite is. See, the word hypocrite comes from the Greek word for actor. Think about that. The word for actor. So a hypocrite is someone who plays the part, but does not believe a word of it. As Jesus says, it is written, and this is in his judgment. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the word used here for robbers can mean actually someone who does steal, but in Jesus's day, it had become the technical term used for an insurrectionist, that is someone who sought to overturn Rome or the ruling powers. So for context, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. 
The men who flanked Jesus on the cross were insurrectionists. So nationalism and violence and bloodshed had come to define the place where God met with his people. This is why Jesus symbolically cleansed the temple, like how God cleansed the earth of violence and bloodshed in Noah's day, so too God would cleanse this temple. And its place would be a new and superior temple, Emmanuel, God who is with us in the flesh. It's why Jesus said, I will tear down this temple and three days later, I will build it back. And he built it back in himself. So to understand why this is an important kingly moment, Consider that Adam's chief role, Adam of Adam and Eve, his chief role was actually to keep God's word and defend God's sanctuary. So when the serpent shows up and attacks Eve, calling into question the goodness of God and his word, Adam failed. He failed to defend the sanctuary and his wife. And because of his sin, they were cast out. The Levites' calling was the same as Adam's. I mean, just go read the book of Leviticus or the book of Numbers, and you'll see this. You'll see it. They were to guard the tabernacle, in particular, the Holy of Holies, ensuring right worship and right relationship to God. And time and again, they failed, like with Nadab and Abihu, who twisted proper worship, leading the people of God astray and died because of it. But it was also the king's responsibility. It was the king's responsibility to protect the temple. And yet throughout Israel's history, it was the kings. It was the kings who led the people astray by offering false worship to other gods, often in Yahweh's name. And it's what led to the destruction of the first temple in 587. Now, Jesus, the rightful king, has brought judgment against this second temple, that has become a building devoted not to prayer, but as Jesus puts it, as a den of insurrectionists. And of course, the Sanhedrin and and so forth were absolutely enraged over him saying this and questioned and turned Jesus' authority, which launched Jesus into a series of parables and teachings. That's all, you can find that in Matthew, what, 22 and following? that culminated with the prediction that the second temple would be destroyed and never rebuilt. And from that point, the religious leaders were hell-bent. It's the best way to put it. They were hell-bent, like the leaders of Jeremiah's day, on killing Jesus. And as an aside, Jesus' prophecy, his enacted judgment, was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple, and it is poignant that not only has that temple never been rebuilt, one of Islam's holiest sites sits on top of it. That's the irony. Now, that takes us back to the end of John 18 and helps explain why we read what we read here. So throughout his Jesus' betrayal and his arrest and his questioning, first by Annas and then by the Sanhedrin led by Caiaphas. And now here at the end of John 18 with Pilate, we've seen that, that throughout Jesus was bound and standing before uh, the, these various authority figures. Even so, he's not passive. He's not passive. 
No, instead, he's, he's asked incisive questions that expose his interrogators' motivations and really their sin. So in every respect, though these authorities thought they were putting Jesus on trial, it was in fact Jesus the King who was standing in judgment over them. And it's telling that of all the people who investigate Jesus, Pilate comes the closest to getting Jesus right. After dismissing Jesus with what is truth, he went out to the crowds and said, I find no guilt in him. He's innocent. And the Jewish leadership, you see, had not been able to produce anything against Jesus, going so far as bringing false witnesses against him. Even so, they told Pilate that Jesus was doing evil and deserved to die. And in particular, they were pushing for crucifixion. That's why they went to Pilate. That's how far their jealousy went. And Pilate could see the ride of it. He knew Jesus was, was not worthy of, of that death, not even close, that Jesus was innocent. And all alone, he's not an insurrectionist. He's not a threat to Roman power whatsoever. Even so, remember, we talked about this maybe two weeks ago, Pilate often went against Jewish leadership trying to undermine them. If they wanted Jesus dead, then he wanted Jesus alive. So he attempted to sidestep the Jewish leadership and the pressure they're putting on him and appealed to the large Passover crowds. Keep in mind, I haven't gone to any of this detail, but at Passover, it's one of the pilgrimage days. So Jerusalem would have been, I don't know an exact number, 30 to 40% more people there. Like his population nearly doubled uh, when, when uh, the Passover happened. So he attempts to, to sidestep the Jewish leadership and he appeals to the Passover crowds because this is all gathering, you know, attention from them. And he said, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They rejected Pilate's offer and said, not this man, but Barabbas. And John gives the added detail that Barabbas was a robber. That is an insurrectionist. And this is an incredible, it's an incredible moment. Pilate, think on this, Pilate has the right of things. He has rightly declared that Jesus is both innocent and the king of the Jews. It's the Jewish leadership's answer that is so appalling. Give us Barabbas. This is a perfect picture of what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Jesus took the place of his people whose life had become symbolized, the temple itself symbolized by Barabbas, a false, violent son of the father. Barabbas, bar Abbas, means son of the father. It's more than likely a name he gave himself. Earlier in the week, Jesus had judged the temple as an idolatrous haven for insurrectionists. And here, the Jewish leader, leadership, they confirm it. They say, yep, that's us. They would go on to incite the crowds to call for Jesus' crucifixion, which 
was not merely a horrible way to die, but was a punishment, as the Jewish people saw it, for rebellious Israelite sons cursed by God. So the irony could not be any thicker. The righteous son of God took the place and the curse for the wicked, rebellious son. Those same crowds would insist, as Matthew tells it, that Jesus' blood be on them and their children. And it's, it's a reversal of the covenant promise made to Abraham that salvation is for you and your children. They say, no, we'll take his blood on us and our children. And again, it's, it's a tragic irony. Now, later in John 19, the Jewish leadership would go so far as to say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar, which again was a complete denial of the covenant made with Moses, a covenant that they prided themselves with and pointed to as fundamental to their identity as the people of God. So at root, they didn't care a thing about God. Externally, appearance-wise, sure. But at root, they were no better than the Gentiles they hated. So they chose foreign rule over God's rule. They chose generational cursing and death over generational salvation in life. They chose a false son of the father over the true son of the father. And Jesus, the rightful king of Israel and the world, stands in judgment over the scene. And as we know, he willingly goes to his death for these people, for these people. Now, if you want to see how good and kind our God is, how patient and tenderhearted he truly is, look no further. Look no further. The true and rightful king of Israel who came from the right hand of the father, born of a woman, taking on flesh, flesh God with us, took the place of his sinful covenant-breaking, violence-loving people, a people who rejected their king for a murdering insurrectionist, mocking him along the way, and in turn took the curse and the shame of the cross so that his people might have life. So when John says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, that is arguably the most scandalous statement ever made. No one loves like that. No one except our God. And I'm, I'm just at a loss at how to describe this, just how far and wide God's love truly is. I'm at a loss because I can't, I can't get it. I can't comprehend how deep it is. But I know this, that that love, as huge as it is, is for you too. If the Son of God willingly took the place of Barabbas, he willingly took it for you too. You know, if he loved his disciples, his disciples who denied him and fled from him, he loves you too. So I, I don't care. And this is why it's so scandalous. Because we can always find objections to what I'm getting ready to say. 
I don't care what you've done. I don't care what sin you're hiding or what shame you're terrified will get out. Jesus gave his life for you. That's the scandal of his love. That's what Jonah hated. That's how deeply he loves you. So to close with the words of Sammy Rhodes that we began our service with, in our idolatry, very much like Jesus' own generation, we've substituted many things for Jesus. But in his love, he substituted himself for us. That is the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you, a God so full of loving kindness, tenderheartedness, who doesn't merely endure with his people, but loves and delights in his people, looking to redeem and to restore, to glorify, to forgive, and to resurrect. Thank you for this mercy and this grace we have in Jesus Christ. Through the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.